Welcome to the weekly Dharma Talk podcast from the Columbus Karma Teksum Choling Buddhist Meditation Center. This week's Dharma Talk is entitled The Four Thoughts That Turn the Mind to Dharma by Eric Weinberg. The great Nyingma Lama Dujum Lingpa said, It is vital that you have first trained in the four thoughts that turn the mind. Alan Wallace calls these the four revolutions in outlook. You must bear these in mind at all times and in all situations. This is the unsurpassed crown jewel of Dharma practice. If you like our Dharma Talk series, please consider donating to Columbus Karma Teksum Choling at columbusktc.org. Enjoy the podcast. So, welcome. I'm so happy to see you all. Um, I hope that uh, today's Dharma talk will be um, productive and good for you. I tend to blabber on and on. Uh, so, I, I just like this. I like Dharma as a subject. So, I get going and I don't want to stop. I'm going to try to leave some time at the end for questions and answers, but please forgive me if I don't succeed in doing that. Today, um, they asked me, you know, to pick a topic that I wanted to talk on, which I'm very grateful that for, you know, instead of kind of giving you a book report. And uh, truth be told, um, I was reading a Facebook post from one of my Dharma friends, a guy named John Norris, and uh, he wrote a beautiful little article on um, the four thoughts that turn the mind to Dharma. And that's something that's, you know, pretty uh, basic to Dharma practice, but he kind of he kind of opened it up again in a new way. And I took that and meditated on that and contemplated it and revisited it for myself. And this is what came out. So what's going to happen here is I'm going to give a little bit of a talk based on a traditional way of uh, talking about the Dharma path, the path of Dharma, which is view, in other words, how we see things, how we look at life, um, meditation, how we train our mind and then conduct, um, how we bring that to our everyday life, and every single piece of that's important. This four thoughts that turn the mind turns out to be an extremely brilliant skillful way of mm, causing a revolution in our thinking about um, who we are and what life is and what life isn't. Basically, um, we're born into this world kind of uh, thinking about things <laughs> backwards from reality. What we think of as reality is an illusion, but it sure doesn't seem that way. And what the view is, is something much more durable, much more useful, 
and actually has the potential to give us the conditions we need to create the causes for happiness for ourselves and others. And ultimately, that's really the only motivation that human beings seem to really muster at the deepest level is that we want to be happy. So I feel like this is a really important, really important talk. Um, but before I get into all of that, oh, and I'm going to actually lead you through a little contemplation, a little meditation on the four thoughts that turn the mind um, so that we can experience that together. Um, that kind of comes in two-thirds of the way through what I have to say. But before we do that, um, as a very um, profound method of uh, bringing our minds here to hear the Dharma together, I mean, I'm even going to be hearing it with you, even though it's coming out of my mouth. That's one of the amazing things. Um, As a way of doing that, and as a way of remembering um, remembering the view and engaging in meditation, and thinking about the way we are, here we um, chant the refuge prayer three times. And here's what I'd like to do. You have a sheet in front of you with the refuge prayer on it. And I'd like to chant it once in Tibetan and then recite it once in English and then chant it a third time in Tibetan. Sanje Chudam Suki Chudnamla Jangchu Pardu Dagni Kyapsuchi Dagi Jin Suji Pe Sunamki Drola Pinchir Sanje Druparsho In the Buddha, the Dharma, and the assembly most excellent. I take refuge until I reach enlightenment. By the merit of generosity and other good deeds, may I achieve enlightenment for the sake of all beings. Sanje chudong sukhi chodnamla chong chudardu dagni kyatsuchi Thank you. Um, just as a note, if you're a native English speaker and you're practicing in this Tibetan Buddhist tradition, uh, as I am, uh, I find it very useful um, to always do practice in English until you really get it and understand what you're doing. It's also good to chant it in Tibetan because there seems to be a real resonance and blessing 
in that too. So, um, but give yourself a break and, uh, and allow yourself to understand what it is that you're doing because these practices, including this refuge prayer, are just extremely beautifully constructed in order to lead our minds to the point where we can recognize our own Buddha nature, which is enlightenment, which is the goal we all strive for. So I titled this um, talk, Setting Yourself Up for Living Your Best Life, simply because there's so much living your best life stuff in, in our popular culture. And um, I kind of, I usually don't write out my talks, but this one I wrote out because I think there are some important points. So I'll be reading from my own notes here a little bit. The path to living your best life is what all Buddha Dharma is aimed at. The goal is also called enlightenment which means passing beyond suffering. Buddha Dharma is honing in on that thing that really motivates us all, that we all just want to be happy. The path is explained in many ways, but one of the easiest is view, meditation, and conduct. We start with the view. The four thoughts that turn the mind to Dharma is a contemplation that helps our minds let go of views that afflict us and begin to take on a view that brings us to the path. We have two challenges on this path. And they're at the heart, they're just really at the heart of life itself. They also happen to relate just in case you're like make connections, I do this a lot, um, to other things that come up as twos in Buddha Dharma. There's a lot of numbers. There's two of this and three of that and four thoughts and five Buddha families and so on. And there's just, it's very systematic. So some of the twos that this relates to, uh, these two challenges, they relate to the two core beliefs, the belief that we all, every sentient or living thing has Buddha nature. And it relates to the second thing, interdependence, that everything is connected, everything's connected, therefore everything matters. Some people um, think about Buddhism as being somehow nihilistic or uh, engendering some kind of hopelessness. Well, if you're clinging to your ego, and we're going to get to more of this later, yeah, it's kind of hopeless because ultimately that's an illusion anyway. And, you know, the, the, just the flow of life. If you live a little time or live a long time, it just kind of pulls that apart thread by thread. We've all experienced that, right? So, but that's not the view. The view is, is that everything's interdependent, so therefore everything matters. 
it also relates to the, the two truths. We call it absolute truth and relative truth and the bodhicitta, two bodhicittas, which are ultimate bodhicitta and relative bodhicitta. And I'm only saying this because over the years you'll hear talks about all of those subjects and I want you to be able to link them together. So the first challenge, do not let the vision, the view, be buried by your life, by economics, by politics, and so on. Do not let the view get lost where you're caught up in what happens on a day-to-day basis. This is the first challenge. The second challenge, do not let your view of the middle way, the vision of Mahamudra or the great perfection or enlightenment, stifle your interest in day-to-day affairs. Your family, the political situation, and on and on and on. Do not let the view exclude life situations as if they did not matter, because they do. Alan Wallace, who I happen to like as a Dharma teacher very much, has an expression to keep in mind. He says, stillness in front of movement. So there's the two things, the two challenges are met. First, perceive life as it is with a sense of confidence and stillness and resting with the nature of your own mind, which is Buddha. And second is movement, moving from that place into life, including everything, leaving nothing out, but moving with kindness and compassion. It's easy to say, not so easy to accomplish, and that's why we have these practices, because we need to train. The great Nyingma Lama Dujum Lingpa says, it is vital that you have first trained in the first, in the four thoughts that turn the mind. You must bear these in mind at all times and in all situations. This is the unsurpassed crown jewel of Dharma practice. Excuse my French, but holy crap. Here it is, right here. The unsurpassed crown jewel of Dharma practice. In case you were trying real hard to find that, he just like gave it to you, or I'm, and I'm about to share it. Turns out, you know, most of us who practiced a little while have some familiarity with the four thoughts. Um, they're called the ordinary preliminaries for those of you who practice Nundro. And, um, you know, you wouldn't think of the crown jewel of Dharma practice as being ordinary or preliminary, and yet there you are. Um, even though we're familiar and um, even though Dujum Lingpa says it's the crown jewel, we might actually have a hard time remembering them right off the cuff. So why are these called the ordinary preliminaries in one teaching and the unsurpassed crown jewel of Dharma practice in the next? Our teachers are telling us 
there's no, first of all, there's no contradiction there because our teachers are telling us that until our minds turn away from filtering life through our concepts, labels, habits, and propensities, what I like to call the story of me, we won't be able to make progress on the path. And if we can't make progress on the path, we can't attain, attain the goal. So you can see the critical nature of this. So we wouldn't, not making practice on the path or progress on the path in the main practice, we're probably not gonna live our best life. So this becomes a really important, important thing. Now we're told, relating to that first challenge and to that uh, belief or assertion that we all have Buddha nature, we're told that we, we already have what we seek. We're not gonna get it somewhere else. We already have Buddha nature. And the Uttara Tantra, Maitreya, uses the famous metaphor that our identitylessness has always been present. So we're, we are present beyond labels and habits and propensities. There's, there's something fundamental. There's Buddha there that's beyond anything you can limit by a label. He says it's like sesame, like sesame oil that pervades sesame seeds. It's an important analogy in that Obviously, if you want the oil out of the sesame seed, you got to do a little work. It's, you can know it's there, but you don't get the oil unless you do some work. So the Tantra is right to the point. Jamgun Kantral III said, no matter what somebody's religion is or what they meditate or whether they meditate or or have ever heard the term Buddha nature, or whether they are even human, Buddha nature is the true nature of their mind. If that's the case, why don't we perceive it that way? We've been taught by those who do that our pure perception is obscured by the darkness of ignorance. The darkness of ignorance can be defined as taking our story, our concepts, labels, preferences, habits, and propensities to be a real self. Me. Me yearns for happiness, but does not seem to know how to create the causes for happiness. Instead, out of our egocentric belief, that our habits and preferences and propensities, labels, etc., etc., make us who we are. We try to create happiness for this me by making great efforts to get everything me wants, avoid everything me doesn't want. Even when we succeed, we end up creating causes for suffering and dissatisfaction instead. I don't know how many of you have had that experience of really working hard to get something you really want and getting it 
And then it turns out to be like really a bad idea. Or at very least, um, turns out that it's like a toy under the Christmas tree that you get and it's interesting for a week and then it finds its place in the closet and isn't really important anymore. This is something that repeats again and again and again and somehow we ne never without um, without something that cracks this habit we have, we never figure this out. Maybe we're not as smart as we think we are. Um, anyway, like that for all of us. And in that sense, I want to just interject that we, we should be able to feel empathy for anybody. Because even when you see them doing something really dumb, they're just trying to do something really dumb to be happy, and they're going to fail. And that, require, that requires of us because we are in the same spot and we've caused ourselves suffering in the same way that requires that we call on empathy. So this is a path of that, it's a path of empathy. When we do not realize the nature of mind, we take outer things to be real, investing them with value they do not have and generating expectations they cannot fulfill. Due to this ignorance of the true nature, we develop attraction and attachment towards things me experiences as pleasant. What me experiences as unpleasant generates repulsion and aversion. And me looks on everything that does not fall into one of these two groups with apathy. This is how the three root emotional afflictions or clashes, attachment, aversion, and apathy develop. When they are present, we lose independence of mind. The mind becomes governed by the clashes which prompt us to engage in the actions of body, speech, and mind that obey their commands. These actions are what's known as karma. So when you hear about clashes, the three afflictions, karma, that's what it is. And it doesn't exist except for the fact that we create it. It's not being dumped on you from somewhere. It's important to understand it so we can stop creating it. It's not going to lead, it's not going to lead to our goal of happiness. The more we engage in these actions, the more we gather both positive and negative karma, and the more we entrench our habitual imprints towards the dualistic perception of I, this big me, and other 
it's just being mired in ignorance. We need a break. How do you get a break around here? This is why the practice of Dharma is centered on taming the mind to quiet the operation of karma and kleshas enough to permit successful integration of the wisdom that realizes non-self, which, in other words, this me I think I am is not me. It doesn't mean that the, the people I see don't exist. It's just we don't exist the way we think we do. By cutting through karma and kleshas, like cutting through veils to re reveal our true nature, our Buddha nature, this prajna, this wisdom, is the remedy for the ignorance that perpetuates the cycle of dissatisfaction and suffering. So when we say that, you know, what the Buddha did, what he taught in the sutras, he taught enlightenment, which meant passing beyond suffering. He was all about defeating suffering utterly, cutting it off at the root. That's what he was all about. Our teachers and all great bodhisattvas are giving their whole heart to supporting us by pointing out a path that leads to the direct experience of our nature, awakened nature, just like the Buddha. They gave us these four contemplations for cutting habitual thinking, me thinking, off at the root. As Talopa said to Naropa, it's not appearances that trouble you, Naropa. It's your clinging. Dujum Rinpoche is even more, um, what shall I say, direct. He says, do not cut off the root of phenomena. Cut to the root of your mind. Cutting to the root of your mind, one thing liberates everything. Not cutting to the root of your mind, then knowing and having everything, you still missed one thing. And it is taught again and again, I think Kempo Ujin mentioned it, um, the mind is critical. It's what, it's what creates all of this. It's what creates our relationship to all of this. So it's important not to miss that one thing. But this is the point where I'd like to meditate uh, together on these four revolutions of thought. So relax for a minute. And I'll just kind of briefly guide you through. Sit up straight if possible. And in any case, sit comfortably. 
simply rest your attention on your breath. Let go of whatever comes up in your awareness. Whatever grabs your attention, recognize it. And let it go. This is how we train our minds. It's an enormous power that we can use all day long dropping a thought, dropping a story, opening space for our Buddha nature, our creativity, our wisdom, to make a good connection with whatever appears. So it's important. Now, we'll read these four thoughts. Listen to them with the intention of contemplating them in such a way that they'll create the conditions needed for enlightenment. slightly different order than you might be used to. Trungpa Rinpoche told me that was okay. So the first thing to contemplate is karmic cause and effect. Just as nature is conditioned and forms of the four elements arise and deteriorate. So it is the karmic causes and conditions dominate everything. I cause my own happiness and unhappiness. May I call, may I choose the right action. Deeply, deeply contemplate your yearning to choose the right action.
take it in deeply, your wish to grow in that direction to the point where it breaks your heart to do anything else. Second contemplation is the disadvantages of samsara. In the Nundro text, it says life is like a feast offered to us by our executioner. Elsewhere, it says just as bees work tirelessly for honey. Candle flame attracts the moth. And fish hurry toward the bait. The hook of samsaric pleasure throws us into oceans of suffering. May I have true renunciation of samsara. contemplate and think about how chasing after what we want and avoiding what we don't want being apathetic towards everything else just doesn't deliver the goods it's designed to be unsatisfactory contemplate pulling away from thinking you'll get rewards that just aren't there. And recognize that samsara, this duality is just not designed that way. It's designed for dissatisfaction, not satisfaction. Take that deeply in, recognize that.
it doesn't work because this ego that we use it to serve actually itself doesn't last. We all know this. Just looking at the changes in our own lives from the time we were born until now, they're profound. Whoever that was that was born, uh, there's a mind that thinks there's a continuity there, but you look in the mirror and you can be quite certain that's not true. So the third contemplation is the preciousness of human birth. So while using samsara to serve this sense of self, which isn't even who we are, is a challenge. This precious human birth is still something. What makes it precious? What makes it precious is that it's a, the best opportunity we have as living beings. We're in the best place to be able to recognize our true nature, which is awakened, enlightened, past, beyond suffering. That's what makes it precious. So hearing the Dharma is extremely precious. A precious human birth is extremely hard to find. Lots of humans around, very few, are contemplating these four thoughts. If taken to heart, eternal happiness will triumph. If wasted, a rare opportunity is destroyed. So contemplate and pray. May I take action and embrace the essence of this treasure. Make a commitment to yourself. contemplation is the uncertainty 
of the time of death or impermanence. Life is precarious, like a candle flame in the wind, fragile as a water bubble. The time of death is unpredictable, and the causes of death are many. Conditions for survival cannot be guaranteed. For these reasons, may I never be lazy or procrastinate in my practice. think about your future self, yourself one minute from now or a year from now or 10 or more years from now. What do you want? What do you want to avoid? What are you afraid of? What do you need? And then from the very core of your heart, Make a commitment to give your future self what it needs in order to be free of suffering. To wake up and benefit beings skillfully with kindness. and send that to yourself. While things are impermanent and uncertain, we're here now, and we can make that aspiration, we can make that prayer. we can take those steps, the next step on the path, it will surely bring us to recognizing our Buddha nature. Those are the four thoughts. And it's good to practice a little shamatha, a little mind that lets go every day. And it's good to contemplate these four thoughts every day. And here's why. Letting go of thoughts dropping the stories we tell ourselves and resting in open awareness coupled with the view that arises with contemplating these four thoughts becomes a vast resource for meeting whatever happens in our day. And that is important. It turns out achieving confidence in the view
and stability in meditation on the cushion is not enough to create the causes for a durable happiness. It needs to be carried over into post-meditation with insight and empathy for whatever happens in our day. And that's what we call conduct. In my experience, that means practicing these things again and again so that the power of a mind that lets go is simply a way of being, an ever-present power, and the right view simply becomes a way of being. As it is said, when the fire is raging, it's too late to start learning how to build a fire truck. The truck has to be ready to roll now. In um, the Hindu tradition, there's this great tale called the Ramayana. It's one of my favorite things. Some of you have heard me tell this little vignette from it before. At the end of the Ramayana, it turns out the monkey god, Hanuman, uh, who is the servant of Ram, who is like the god, you know, and um, Sita, who's the feminine aspect of God. So Ram and Sita are married, but evil has stolen the feminine away and kidnapped her in Hanuman and was going to kill her. And Hanuman rescues her from the Isle of Lanka and flies her back to Ram. And they have a big old party they're celebrating, and they can't believe how brave and how incredibly skillful and all that that the servant of God was. And as a reward, Ram gives Hanuman his ring, which Sita had given him. So there's this male aspect and female aspect in union, and peace couldn't come until that union was realized. There's a lot of iconography in Buddhism and Hinduism about all of that. And I think that's actually a model for what's reality in our own hearts. Anyway, um, so Ram gives the symbol of that union to Hanuman. And Hanuman picks it up and he bites it. And his jaws are so strong, he crushes it to dust. And Ram, God, says, you crazy monkey. That's probably the most precious thing on earth. And Hanuman looks at him and says, no, it's not. It's just a thing. And he takes his fingers and he rips open his chest so that his ribs are exposed. And on all of his ribs are written, wrong, wrong. completely identified with the divine. And that's the kind of thing that happens when you have consistent practice. This gets written down on your bones. So when you're carrying yourself through life moment to moment, 
your mental energy has a chance to run over this sacred reality of uh, Buddha nature and kind of create that kind of presence. And when you're called to serve, you serve with that kind of generosity and insight and wisdom. And when you're called to rest, you rest in this bliss. And that's what's known as passing beyond suffering. As we know from some of our teachers who went through um, the invasion of the Chinese to, in Tibetan 59, obviously their, their bliss, their happiness just didn't depend on outer circumstances. Because if there were ever any bad circumstances on this earth in the last 60 years, those were them. It was horrible. And yet, when you meet them and talk to them, it's not that they weren't there. It's not that they didn't act. It's not that they didn't do all the right things. They had a lot to do. It was harder than, you know, life in Tibet had been before then, certainly. It was even harder than that in exile. Um, but it didn't touch. It was all just happening. It didn't touch their sense of goodness, their sense of kindness, their sense of compassion, even for the Chinese. How does that happen? Well, what they tell us is it can happen for us too. They expect it. They give their whole heart for us to be like that too. That no matter what appears, whether it's great or whether it sucks, there will be this, this presence for the benefit of ourselves and others that's just pure goodness. When uh, I, would, I saw Karmapa a few years ago, and somebody asked him, what's the best way to be your follower? He said, just be a good person. That was it. <laughs> when you think about it, that's kind of tricky. Because um, we have, I don't know about you, but I have ways to go. And so that's what this framework is about. It's like, okay, if you do shamatha every day and you contemplate these four thoughts every day, you're beginning to imprint this reality of Buddha nature and interdependence on your, not just on your mind, but on your whole body and on your speech, on all your relationships you know, with everyone else. And I will tell you, because I've known a lot of people, I've had the good fortune to know a lot of people over the years who've taken this seriously. It really works. You know, I feel really good when I'm around them. So, um, I want to finish with um, Dujum Rinpoche again saying, 
the essential point of conduct is not to forsake the view in your daily activities. If you discard the practice of the profound view and meditation, you will once again create the causes for suffering and dissatisfaction. That's not like a threat or a guilt trip. That's just saying, hey, it's up to you. And so I'd like to end there. Um, there's, uh, there's little time for Q&A if anybody wants to offer any uh, thoughts. That's fine, it doesn't have to be a question. Or any questions, I'll try my best to answer them. Thank you. Thanks for your attention. Hi, Tim. trying to make the right choice for what we're going to do in the next moment. And there's techniques that I've come up with, and I'm not going to go into them much, but one of them is um, spending time ahead of time contemplating, trying to figure out what I did to produce something good in my life, what I did to produce something bad in my life. Mm -hmm. And once I can really accept responsibility for those actions and really um, connect with those results that came, uh, it's so much easier to either embrace that future action that produced that good result or to avoid that future action that produced that bad result. I mean, it's like we're really um, taking advantage of our own personal experience. You know, yeah. it's, not, it's not we're not listening to somebody else telling us what's good or bad. We, we now have our own personal evidence for what turned out good or what turned out bad in our life, so. That, I think that's excellent. It, that's right, I mean, that's what this is about. It's up to us. Um, what Buddha taught was that uh, if he could give us what we wanted, he would. <laughs> he's, he's the soul of compassion, honestly. Um, but he realized that he couldn't do it. It's up to us. So what he gave us was a path, a way of dis discerning. And that's what you were talking about, I think, is a kind of like what in Buddha lingo is called discriminating wisdom is really understanding how things fit together and then making choices based on the view. It's beautiful. Thank you. There's no other comment or question. I actually have one more thing um, that I kind of cobbled together out of some things Thich Nhat Hanh said that I just liked a lot. So 
just shared that with you. Mind is a field in which every kind of seed is sown. This mind field can be called all the seeds. In us are infinite varieties of seeds. Seeds of samsara, nirvana, delusion, and enlightenment. Seeds of suffering and happiness. Seeds of perceptions, names, and words. Even while blooming, the flower is already compost. And the compost is already in the flower. Flower and compost are not two. So practice conscious breathing to water the seeds of awakening. Right view is a flower blooming in the field of mind consciousness. I kind of like that. So, um, in order to in order to close, uh, let's do the dedication of merit together in English. By this merit, may all attain omniscience. May it defeat the enemy wrongdoing from the stormy waves of birth, old age, sickness, and death. From the ocean of samsara, may I free all beings. The courageous Manjushri, who knows everything as it is, Samantabhadra, who also knows in the same way, and all the bodhisattvas, and I may follow in their path, I completely dedicate all this virtue. Thank you, everybody. Thank you for joining us for this week's Dharma Talk. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. If you did, please subscribe, rate, and review it on iTunes. To learn more about the Columbus Karma Teksum Choling or to donate to support our Dharma Talk series, please visit our website at columbusktc.org. The opening and closing music for the podcast is Tibetan Flute Song by Tamding Arts at tamdingarts.com. Please join us again next week for another Dharma Talk.